Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Robert Murphy, PhD, a senior fellow with the Mises Institute. He's the author of numerous books, including Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian, Chaos Theory, Lessons for the Young Economist, Choice, Cooperation, Enterprise, and Human Action, and he's written numerous other books, including one on Bitcoin I recommend to everybody. He's also the host of the Bob Murphy Show. But today we're here to talk about his latest book, released just this past December, called Understanding Money Mechanics. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. Glad to be here. There's a whole bunch of things that I'd love to ask you about and a lot of rabbit holes to go down. And what I'm going to suggest, and we'll post on the show notes page, is an episode of your own show that you did just last month. And it was called Bob Murphy Admits Steve Patterson Was Wrong About the Problems with Infinity. And that sounds like quite a long discussion. I think what was valuable about that is that it it shows there's kind of a chink in the armor of all good things start with academia and flow out to the real world and we should listen to the experts. Is that a fair evaluation of why this might be important to the average Joe? Sure. And just a, a minor correction, Tom, you said the title was admit Steve Patterson was wrong about infinity. It's actually was right about infinity. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just so the listener's not confused. So yeah, the quick version of what happened is this guy, Steve Patterson, he, he goes around and, and tries to poke holes in the high priests of these various disciplines. So of course, in my area of economics, I routinely tell the public that, oh yeah, what they're teaching at MIT and Harvard and whatever, they're real sharp guys and gals out there, but it, it's bad economics. And it's not surprising then that all these whiz kids running the central banks around the world keep setting us up for booms and busts. And I'm sure Tom will get more into that when we get into my latest book on Austrian economics. But what Steve was doing is he was showing that, oh, people know that Freudian psychoanalysis was probably a cul-de-sac at best. And they know various things and all this, these critical theory and such that have conquered some of the social sciences is bad news. But what he did 
was he was even saying mathematics itself also has corruption all the way at the top. And I originally, when I heard that thesis, thought that was goofy, you know, and, and his problems with irrational numbers or imaginary numbers and thing. But it's, I had come across some results involving inf- infinite sets of a certain type. And people can go to the episode and look it up if they want, if they want the details. But I realized that, oh, wow, Steve was right. That in other words, what would it look like if the mathematicians really had built a huge foundation on quicksand? at least with the way that they used infinite sets in certain applications. And so you're right, Tom, that sounds like a very esoteric, like what the heck do I care about that? If I'm taking my kids to soccer practice and worried about price inflation, but it is, I think true that what happens is people come up with faulty ideas in academia, and then maybe it takes a generation or two, but that eventually percolates out that ideas really do run the world. And so if the academics have, bad ideas that does eventually have ramifications that hits everybody. And let me just say, Tom Mullen, English major and uh, not a mathematician. I was decent in math, but you will be able to stay with this, everybody. And it is worth staying with it. I think the episode's a little longer than the usual one, but I really recommend going and listening to it. And for me, it's somewhat related to your series on Klaus Schwab, because I thought of him and the whole gang there that gets together at Davos as exactly the same thing. They're a bunch of academics in an ivory tower. They come up with some ideas that might have validity and a lot of ideas that don't, and that the bad results that might flow from those meetings for the rest of us are merely this kind of academic error that promotes bad ideas that then get changed into policy. I I think that's a fair way to describe the way you used to think about Klaus Schraub, and now you think about him differently. Let let me first agree with what you're saying that, because there's an episode yet that I didn't record that hasn't dropped yet, Tom. So maybe by the time your listeners hear this, it will have come up, but I guess it'd be part four of my series on Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and so on. And I focused on this guy that just came onto my radar that's associated with the World Economic Forum. This guy, his, his name is Harari, is his last name. And he's got a PhD from Oxford, I believe. I think it's in history proper. And he's been featured twice from the main stage at the WEF recently in 2018. And it's just downright creepy, the stuff this guy believes. And it, but again, it, and I was just thinking, okay, these are ideas that have been percolating around in academia. And now with the World Economic Forum and they're pushing this great reset and everything that's, that's going on there. And they're plugged into all these major players, media, big corporations, government officials and whatnot. And so it, it really is showing that this is why, yet, like you say, having these intellectuals carrying around these really bad ideas. And to give your listeners some idea, like what are you talking about? What do you mean it's creepy? Things like him, he's saying now with the advent of genetic engineering, he's saying how human beings are hackable like you can hack into a computer system. So he's saying human beings are hackable because we have big data now. And he is saying the Gestapo and the KGB and whatever, they couldn't have dreamed of doing this because they didn't have enough data and they didn't have the understanding of the biological sciences that we have now. And I'm not putting words in his mouth. That's literally how he talks. And then he will go so far as to say at some point, the difference between the people that engineer themselves with augmentation or gene editing and whatnot, he said they will be a different species from the normal humanity, let's call them, or unaugmented ones. I went to his website when I saw these clips from the WEF that were creepy. And 
I think this is a quote. This is this guy Ferrara's own website saying, history began when humans invented gods and history will end when humans become gods. Okay, so this isn't something that Glenn Beck is putting into his mouth. This is what this guy says at his own website, like his catchphrase or his slogan. So if this was just some English professor in some crazy left-wing university somewhere that reached 100 undergrads every year, you wouldn't think too much of it. But now these are some of the world's most powerful people. And this guy is on the stage telling them this is what the future is. So again, this is why it's important to combat intellectual error, because when these bad ideas take root and they find expression in people who have political power, bad things are going to happen. And I remember, and this is going back maybe 10, 12 years, I was at a Campaign for Liberty event. I think I spoke at it. And Ron Paul had a breakfast where people could ask him questions. And one young fellow, I would say in his early to mid twenties, comes up to the microphone and he says, a lot of your followers, Dr. Paul, believe in conspiracy theories. Do you think that there is a conspiracy to extinguish liberty or however you put it or not? And I really loved Ron's answer because it was, you're not going to find 12 guys in a room somewhere trying to take over the world. (laughs) But there is a group of people who have very different ideas from us. And I wouldn't call it a conspiracy because it's very out in the open that they have a vision of world government and control over humans' actions, et cetera. And we just disagree with that. We want things more decentralized down to the individual to the extent possible. So I guess the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is it seemed like in your series, you changed your opinion on them, but at the end of the day, what's the difference between them being a bunch of intellectuals that have very bad ideas and really believe this is what's best for us and somebody who's more kind of sinister and evil, if there is a difference? Okay, so yeah, now I I see where you were going before when you said my views. So what's interesting with this stuff is, and just prod me again, Tom, if I'm not quite answering the the actual question you have here, I'll start to say something is at least in the same zip code as what you're asking about that there's a sense in which you say, oh yeah, you can see that the various bad policies that come down from government entities, schools, the media, and it seems like it's coordinated, right? It's not just a bunch of random things. It seems like there's this agenda, whether it's a climate change or with with the pandemic. And it, it seems like, man, are these people, how are they all so coordinated? And so what I'm coming to realize is there really are clearinghouse organizations. And you hesitate to go into this stuff because there's this huge rabbit hole and there's a lot of nonsense that gets written in this genre of conspiracy theories or whatever you want to call it. But there really is a Bilderberg group. There really is the Council on Foreign Relations. There really is the World Economic Forum and you can go and see. And so it's the mechanisms there. So it's sort of this catch-22 where if you had no specifics, if, if you were just saying, oh, there's these shit, it's the giant oil companies or the media or it's the government, the CIA, and they're doing all this stuff, and you had no evidence, people could just dismiss you and say, you're just making stuff up. There's no proof. But on the other hand, if you go and play clips from Klaus Schwab admitting to David Gergen in front of a crowd, it was at the Harvard School of Government and Business, saying, ah, yes, I'm very proud that our young leaders, Global Leaders Initiative graduates have penetrated the cabinets of many governments around the world. And he really did say that. And that was the verb he used. He said, we have penetrated the cabinets of governments around. He's saying it openly on camera. And you're like, look at this. He's taking over. <laughs> and I'm going to say, if it were the secret cabal, I don't think they would be admitting it on camera. Or David Rockefeller famously had a thing in his memoirs 
where he, this is a paraphrase, but something like, some people have accused my family over the years of working with globalists against the interests of the United States. And to that, I plead guilty. And that's not an exact quote, but your listeners, they go look that up and you'll see, I'm not putting words in his mouth. And so it's ironic that when you bring this stuff up and people can then see they're admitting it. So clearly it can't be the sinister thing you're saying. So it's this weird thing where it's hidden in plain sight. So my take is a nuanced one where what a lot of these people are doing, like this guy Harari that I was talking about, I think he sincerely believes in what he's talking about. And he says, like it or not, technologically speaking, we're going to know how to edit genes. And it's not just, oh, is your kid going to have Down syndrome? And why don't we go ahead and tweak that and give parents the option? It's going to be, I want a kid who's 6'4 with blue eyes and is real muscular and has a real high IQ and that, 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 you know, have designer babies and won't that create this new caste system where the rich are having even more advantages than they do right now. And what do we think about the fate of democracy? And he can just say, look, look, whether you like it or not, that's coming. And so we're just trying to get ahead of it. And when you have people like that, like it's going to attract power hungry people as well, who are more sinister. And in any event, what I've been trying to do in the series, Tom, is since you've been listening to it, is I try to explain it from their point of view, that the world right now is in chaos, right? There have been world wars. So you can see why they would think leaving it up to the masses to periodically have elections for their little jurisdiction. And there's 180 some of these entities called the nation state around the world that can occasionally go to war with each other. That's a crazy system. Wouldn't it make more sense to have a bunch of technocrats, people who are trained and efficient running a global system will have law-based rule of law and whatever. For the same reason, most people think there needs to be a government for a given city. These people just, yeah, the same thing for planet earth. Why would we have anarchy on planet earth? So you need to have one global government. And again, in one of the episodes, I quote from Strobe Talbot, who was a deputy secretary of state in the Clinton administration. He wrote an essay for Time Magazine in 1992, just openly calling for global government and saying, clearly, the nation state's obsolete. What a, what a crazy way to run the world. So would you say, is it that these people just mean well and they're transparent and they just have bad ideas or are they twirling their mustaches behind us? I'm saying actually that distinction somewhat dissolves because I think, here's the last thing I'll say on that, that I think they genuinely believe it would be better for humanity if they and their colleagues were running the show. But then they say, oh, but most of humanity, we would have to drag kicking and streams. So that's why we have to use deception. And I think they view it like, a parent might lie to their four-year-old, just like it was Santa Claus, but stuff like I would do this with my kid. If, if we had to leave the park and he didn't want to go, sometimes I would just start walking to the car and say, okay, I'm leaving. And then he would, and he would you know, run after me. So was I really going to leave him there? No, of course not. So I'm saying just like there, I don't think I did something horrible that it was in the best interest of the child. And that was the way to motivate him without him having a tantrum. I think likewise, a lot of these people they openly lie and say, oh yeah, we're doing this stuff, the COVID passports because of the virus when really it's no, we need to be able to track everybody. And they think it's genuinely in the public interest, but they know, oh, these rubes wouldn't understand why. And so we have to lie to them. So I think there's that interplay. It reminds me when you started talking about the humans being hackable, I think about Woodrow Wilson and his book, The New Freedom, which is basically his campaign speeches. And it's pretty startling for anyone who hasn't read it to see that ideas matter. So he actually says in the in one of his speeches in the book, we used to say in Jefferson's time that as long as someone doesn't harm somebody else, that the government shouldn't interfere with them. But we find out now that life is too complicated for that and we need a new principle. So, you know, you think about that translation, we used to run on the non-aggression principle. 
But now we need something new, the new freedom. What he says is the new way to think about liberty is when I think about liberty, he writes, and this is going on memory, but I think of a locomotive or a machine running at peak efficiency. And that's because it's been adjusted properly and et cetera, et cetera, lubricated. And that's his vision for freedom going forward is that we are all adjusted properly and lubricated, of course, by the wise rulers. And so that seems very diabolical, but the, the problem is he got elected twice running on this stuff. And I guess it's the same thing to segue into your book. When you think about the Federal Reserve and everybody, my listeners probably know there was a secret meeting on Jekyll Island with a whole bunch of bankers and, and senators and what have you, not a whole bunch of five or six and Rockefeller had a guy there and Morgan had a guy there. Yeah. Okay. So they cooked up this plot and then they put it out to the public. But the problem is it got overwhelming support from the public. And I would say that the ideas that are going to come out of Davos, so to speak, eventually we'll have a choice to make whether we support them or not. And it always seems like there is a moral choice there that we're going to turn our backs on property rights and accept some program that they say is going to make our lives better. And the key is to not support this. So in other words, I don't want to blame Klaus Schwab and his accomplices. I want to blame the people who eventually will support whatever they come up with next. What do you think of that? Do you think there's more blame on the public or there's more blame on the secret plotters behind the scenes? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. So it's certainly true. And I don't mean to be fatalistic and that ultimately there's, what are we talking about? We talk about the deep state or these shadowy cabals, the, the, the globalists or whatever, you know, you do, you do my Alex Jones impression, the globalists are cool. <laughs> it's what, 10,000, 5,000 people tops compared to seven, 8 billion people on planet earth. So it's a very tiny sliver of the population as to who we're talking about. And so ultimately outside of like a Superman two framework where General Zod and his two Kryptonian friends come and literally humanity can't stop them without Superman because they're just invulnerable. That's not the way the real world works. Even the most brutal dictator or whatever, if the secret police turn on, they can just kill him while he's sleeping. And so it's ultimately, and this is why Mises used to argue, and he was just following a, a line of thought that David Hume had said, and this goes back to Etienne de la Boite and so forth, that people are familiar with these authors, that's saying in the long run, all governments are popular, that in the long run, all governments rest on public opinion. And, and that might sound counterintuitive or crazy to people like, oh no, what about brutal dictatorship? Notice with the brutal dictatorship, even where if you criticize the, the leader, you're dead. And that's just accepted. It's not true that the leader doesn't care about public opinion. In fact, what I just said, if you criticize the leader, you're dead. That's because they need to control. And it's precisely in those totalitarian police states where they have the tightest control over education and the media and so on, because they need to keep the masses ignorant, right? It's in an open society where the government can tolerate, you know, people being critical and, and, and looking at alternative sources of information. And so my point is, why do they do that? It's, it's really not that, oh, the person's in power who has the most guns, because as Mises pointed out, the people holding the guns can just, it's the ideas in their head. They can just turn the guns and point them at the, at the ruler. And that does happen, right? That's not just some far-flung theory. Like it, it does happen that even strong men occasionally fall to a coup or what, what have you. And so, yes, we need to, and that's why I'm doing with the series on Klaus Schwab, you know, highlight, you know, if there's these sinister groups and individuals who are plotting world domination, just to say what it is, 
in perhaps because they think it's better for everybody. But yeah, they can't get away with it, except that there's a sense in which the people let them do it. And so it is a two-pronged thing. And it's also not, I'm trying to say it, I think this is what you're getting at, Tom. The way they trick people into giving them power is by getting the people to do things that are immoral anyway, right? That it's, oh, we need to regulate businesses because of climate change, but we're going to violate property rights. Or, oh, we need to soak the rich, but it's because we're going to give money to the poor as opposed to we, the Rockefellers and so on. Once we get on top, if we have a high income tax, that will prevent our competitors from usurping our position, right? So there's a lot of mega rich corporations that are for regulations and taxes because it keeps down the competition. But my point is, even if you trick the public by giving some nice sounding things, still what they're saying is let's take money from one group and give it to another. And so if the public supports that, the fact that they didn't know the full explanation of what the motivation was still, they're supporting something that from libertarian principles is immoral. And so that's a problem. So you're right, Tom, that if we did have a virtuous public, even like in the United States, even just people who genuinely respected the constitution and said, no, I can't support the government doing something that's clearly unconstitutional, that would have been enough to stop all this stuff. But that's not the world we live in. And the last word on that, because I want to get to the book is, I think also that we just don't learn from our mistakes. So I think of Thomas Sowell's work basically saying that affirmative action and government programs purporting to help African-Americans have made things worse for them. And I think that the principle just applies to everybody, that it's the same thing. Even if you don't consider this a moral issue, just your own self-interest, you should be able to look back at when the Federal Reserve was created and say, yeah, they told us it was going to protect us from panics and make everything more stable, basically give us economic safety, but it hasn't. And it was predicated upon a redistribution of wealth, inflation, that's what it is. And lots of people at the time said that, and the public ignored that, and it has been a disaster. So, and I think you could go down the line with just about everything as far as the New Deal, another one, you wrote a whole book about that that it was offered as safety. And really, I don't think people realize how much damage the New Deal does every day to us, but we'll post a link to your book on that. Let's get into the book because I was really looking forward to it when you announced it because it would deal with some of the questions that I think are a chink a little bit in our armor, perhaps, maybe not ultimately, but the, the book basically is an overview of how money works. And it gets into a lot of the questions that people have. There's a great section in, in it on the gold standard, and I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but I can say one thing. I thought that right from the time that they defined the dollar and that act in the 1790s, that the government was issuing paper bills that you could trade in one-to-one -one for gold. Not so. Right. Yeah. So the way people, and this is what I thought too, that normally when people first start getting into like gold buggery and hard money and that stuff that they say, oh yeah, FDR you know, took us off gold. And then Nixon finally was the final nail in the coffin. And yeah, I had this notion that it was always green pieces of paper that you could turn in and get your gold and, or silver coins in exchange for. And as you say, originally the dollar was defined as a certain weight of gold and silver. And Americans really were walking around with gold and silver coins in their pockets. And that's how they would make payment. And the, the government didn't even really print up pieces of paper 
until many years into the Republic. And so people need to realize that. And that's why like actual genuine economic historians and experts on the gold standard say that even the gold standard as of what we call the classical gold standard of 1910, let's say, as of then, that that is actually not as much a gold and silver. In other words, they the governments had weaned the public from it. That already at that point, most people were using the paper money that the governments issued just because they were redeemable and gold and silver. But so that was part of the process of getting people away from thinking of the money as gold and silver and instead thinking of it as that national currency. It accentuates that no, the power delegated to the government to coin money and regulate the value thereof has nothing to do with any kind of central bank because literally what they meant is take your physical gold out there and we'll stamp it into coins. And that's what they were thinking about when they actually wrote those words for the constitution. So I encourage everyone to read that whole, read the whole book, but that part of it was particularly interesting to me. That was something that I didn't fully understand until I really got hit deep into the research for that book. And yeah, that's actually my favorite chapter, the one you're talking about where I give the history of, of gold and silver in the, in the U.S., that, yes, that, that clause in the Constitution about they have the power to coin money, it's not that they create dollars and then set the redemption rate. It's not a peg. Again, they were defining like what is a dollar, and it was a certain amount of grains of gold or silver. And like the way to think of it, it is they were viewing it as the government's role and sort of like just establishing units of weight and measure and such, just like they might say for legal contractual purposes, 12 inches is the same as one foot. So if there was a contract that instead of one foot, then and you need to know how many inches, like that was the idea that they were setting weights and measures just so everybody could engage in commerce. So what do we mean by a dollar? This is what we mean, right? Again, so it wasn't a promise to redeem the dollar. It wasn't monetary policy. It was just setting the standard definition so that people could use and everybody could agree on the count. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand Something no politician understands Just leave it up to supply and demand and follow It reminds me, I, this is a long time ago, I read a coffee table book that had all these explanations of common expressions. And what this reminds me of is the one getting down to the brass tacks 
where according to this book, somebody was going to buy a yard of cloth. Everybody's idea of a yard could be different, but that there was a guy in England that would go around to the various merchants and say, this stick is a yard. And they put two brass tacks in the counter to say, this is a yard. So if anyone's arguing, okay, let's get down to the brass tacks and see, is this thing longer or shorter? And that's all the government was empowered to do is to say this many grains of silver or gold is a dollar and that's it. And we can make coins for you. Basically just verifying that's how many went into this coin. Yeah, that's interesting, Tom. I didn't know that was the origin of that expression. And, yeah, and just to elaborate on that, so it's in that mechanism or that framework, it, it wasn't that the government produced the money, like you say. So somebody else who went up and just dug up more gold and then went and, and it circulated, you could in principle go to a shop and just say, here's an ounce of gold and I want to buy you know, whatever you're selling for an ounce of gold. And if, if the shopkeeper could weigh it and such, that would work. So in other words, it, it wasn't that something needed the government's endorsement to be the money. But like you say, they would coin it, whatever, just for convenience, but it was the gold itself was the money. And also too, and people may have vaguely heard about the free coinage of silver and stuff like that. And those are political debates with William Jennings Bryan and such. But in this period, anybody could bring the raw gold or silver to the appropriate place and they would just turn it into the coins. So it wasn't that the government decided how much money, what the money supply should be. It wasn't that they said, oh, what's the latest price inflation rate? No, we better, that no, they just said, you bring us this much gold and we will turn it into coin at this ratio period. And so there was a sense in which the market or the public determined the quantity of money, just like the market determines the daily production of crude oil. It's not that some government agency sets that. And so that's what money was like. And as far as paper money in that period, I think you mentioned your local bank or state chartered bank may issue notes. And this, this word note, I just want to get into in a second, but the, what that basically was, you'd give your gold to the banker and he gives you a note that's more like a claim check where you turn in your coat, they give you a little ticket, you go back, you give them the ticket, they give you your coat back, except all the coats are the same and blah, 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 fungible. But that was the only extent to where you had what we would think about as paper money floating around. Right. Yes. So that, yeah, there was a period where the U.S. government was not in the business of producing paper money at all. And to the extent that people did have pieces of paper that one might have colloquially thought of, oh, that's $10. What it really was, legally speaking, was not legal tender money per se. It was, as you say, a reputable bank would issue a certificate saying, you present this at any of our branches, and then we will give you 10 ounces of, or whatever the number of ounces of gold to be $10. And, and so that's what it was, you know, for, ease, for convenience, because in certain situations, you might not want to be lugging around a bunch of the actual yellow metal. And so it'd be easier to have just pieces of paper, but they were, like you say, claim tickets, as it were, on the actual money. The word note, I have a friend who's about 10 years older than me, was my neighbor when I lived in Florida. And when he talks about a car loan, that's the word he uses, car note. And when he talks about a mortgage, he says house note. It's funny because the word note has a definition in financial terms, which is that the issuer of the note owes something specific to the bearer. So if I sign a car loan, I'm saying I'm going to pay back exactly $15,000 plus whatever interest I agreed to precisely. So do you think there's deliberate deception in calling Federal Reserve notes notes? 
I read a little bit of history on it. It seems like they didn't call them Federal Reserve notes until the whole FDR gold standard thing. And then before that, they called them national bank notes. But of course, a Federal Reserve note is not redeemable to the issuer for anything specific. You can go out and trade it for a lawnmower or a car or whatever. So how do you see that? Is that a deliberate deception or just anachronism or what? It's probably both. So I confess, I don't know the exact chronology, but I believe they were calling them Federal Reserve notes at a time when they really were redeemable. Like, in other words, it was a bank note because the Federal Reserve was a bank and it was issued by that. So it was a bank note and the bank was the Federal Reserve. So hence a Federal Reserve note. And why was it a note? Because like you say, it signifies a debt or a promissory note. And so it's saying, yeah, you have this thing and you go turn it in, then the Federal Reserve will give you the requisite amount of gold or silver. And then, yeah, once they stopped redeeming it, the term still hung around. And so you could argue, oh, it's, it's merely an anachronism, but I would argue, no, that they liked the public still thinking of that. And they didn't want to be too blatant about how things had changed. It's a similar thing too, where it's like the Federal Reserve right now, in terms of its balance sheet, the, the outstanding currency and whatnot is in the, in the reserves are listed as liabilities, right? Like in other words, if you have a $100 bill and you're putting your wallet, Benjamin Franklin, technically I think that's carried on the Fed's balance sheet as a liability. And you say, oh, if I turn this in, what does the Fed owe me? And we can get five twenties or 10 tens or hundred singles. <laughs> and so it's not like the Fed is out. You, know, you just gave them a hundred dollar bill and they're going to, it's, it's, I don't know if you ever saw that old Saturday Night Live sketch where they were doing a bank and they were saying stuff like that. If you give us a hundred dollar bill, we'll give you five twenties. Then Kevin Nealon comes and goes, how do we make our money? Volume. <laughs> so anyway, I think it's a similar thing that once they left the gold standard, the Fed's balance sheet, like, what does that mean to say it's a liability? They're not really on the hook for anything, but yet they still kept that just for the accounting. Maybe it comes down to the Klaus Schwab thing. It doesn't matter whether it's intentionally sinister or not. The results are the same. So this chapter, Crying Wolf on Inflation, this is the one that I got to tell you, Bob, I said, oh boy, here we go. And you go through eight different explanations for why we didn't see more significant price inflation after QE than we've been used to throughout a lot of our lives. So at all times, prices are going up, which is not a normal thing. And that's a result of our monetary system. But you and most other people who think the way we do thought that with this QE, it would go up a lot more than it had been going up the previous 10 or 20 years. And it didn't. There's eight different things you go through. And I got to be honest, at the end, I thought I was going to get the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and you just give the pros and cons of each idea. And it's almost like you want us to think for ourselves. That was pretty disappointing. Let me just, I know you're being partly tongue in cheek, but yeah. So the part of what's going on is with this particular book, what we wanted was for this to be a reference that even like a Keynesian college professor would have no problem assigning to his students to say, Hey, this explains how the Fed works and open market. Yeah. The guy's an Austrian. I don't agree with him on some stuff, but go ahead and read. So that's why this was more with these issues, like to just to say, yep, yeah, here's some explanations that have been offered as to why price inflation wasn't as high as people thought. And I, again, it's, I didn't want to tell, I, I, like you say, I wanted to leave it to the reader to make their own decision, but that's why it was like that. Okay. So there were a few that jumped out at me that I highlighted. So some of them like the government CPI measure vastly understates price inflation. Well, I think that's true but that's always true. So that wouldn't be a convincing one even to me. But 
one of the ones I thought sounded pretty plausible is that the new money stayed bottled up in the banks. It never got out to the hands of the public. And that one seems directly related to the point you cover after that, which is the new money went into the stock market, real estate and commodities, not into retail goods. What's your take on those two? And what's a summary of how you cover that in the book? Okay, sure. So again, just in case the listener got a little bit mixed up. So what in this chapter, it's called crying wolf on hyperinflation and, or inflation. And there's a question mark. And so the the issue is that after, and it's funny now that we're saying this, Tom, is I think is the latest number, 7.9% of what the price inflation was year over year. And so at this point, the people who had been warning about price inflation don't look so dumb, but there was a period where right when QE started in the fall, going into winter of 2008, where the Fed was pumping in unprecedented amounts of re- reserves and people, including me, were very alarmed and were warning this is going to lead to, especially with all the things constraining real output that the Obama administration was putting into place once he got elected and came in. We we're warning that, oh yeah, less physical output and then a bunch more money, you're going to have rising prices. And that didn't materialize, at least to the extent that we thought. And so then this chapter is giving some explanations of what people have said as to you know how come we didn't see high price inflation. And so that's what we're going through right now. So one one expert or one offered theory was to say, oh yeah, the Fed pumped in a bunch of money, but it just went right to the banks and they didn't lend it out to the general public. And so it just stayed bottled up in the banks and the public didn't have more money to go spend on bread and gasoline. And so that's why. So it is true that the normal way things work, at least according to the textbook, is if the Fed wants to engage in expansionary policy, it buys assets, typically treasury securities, that creates reserves out of thin air in terms of the accounting. The commercial banks now have more reserves, so legally they're allowed to make more loans to the general public. And so if in a normal situation, if they go ahead and do that, now there's like a multiplier effect. It's not just what the Fed pumped in, but then there's money pyramided on top of that, that in a sense, the commercial banks create And so it's true that didn't happen as much as it normally did. The banks, in other words, had a lot of excess reserves. But still, under any measure you want of of money in the hands of the public, M1, M2, whatnot, that still went up significantly after 2008. So my point is, yeah, you can explain why we didn't get hyperinflation if you want. But still, just in terms of the normal way a lot of us were analyzing it, this doesn't explain why price inflation, it still should have shot up a lot, is my point, if that were the only issue. I guess there was another one where you say demand for dollars increased just as much, and that's, I'll leave it to the reader to read, but yeah, of course, that would always be true. What do you think of this theory? In, in the 60s and early 70s, there was monetary inflation, and we did see the immediate effect of prices going up. But at that time, China, Russia, a lot of Latin America, a lot of the world was communist or socialist, and that we saw kind of a renaissance of a large part of the world becoming market economies, not laissez-faire by any means, but at least market economies. And so that when we inflated in the 2010s as compared to the 1970s, there just was a lot more room for dollars to be diluted out there in the worldwide marketplace. Is there anything to that? Let me answer it this way. Historically, especially the further back you go when, when you're in the U.S. was on gold 
and or silver, there was still boom bust cycles. They call them panics depending on the particular time period. But what would happen is, yeah, there would be monetary inflation, prices would rise, then there'd be a crash and then prices would fall. And so that's why over long stretches, like even a hundred years, the purchasing power of the dollar was basically constant. We're talking like the 1800s. And that changed after Nixon takes his off gold for sure, where it was just sometimes price inflation would be higher or lower, but it was this general thing. It wasn't that there was ever long periods of deflation where consumer prices actually fell. So I think what would have happened is after the 2008 crisis, yeah, for various reasons, people fled to safety as gauge of treasuries and whatnot. And so had the Fed not inflated a lot, you would have seen, actually, there was like a month or two in the fall of 2008 where even the CPI did come down officially, headline CPI and such. And so, yeah, I think had the Fed not done that, the panic would have meant that you would have seen prices fall, that there would have been hoarding of dollars and dollar-denominated assets. And that would have been, to get back to your actual question, I think, yes, the integrated global economy and financial system with a lot of people around the world in central banks and whatnot holding dollar-denominated assets, that would have been more pronounced than perhaps in earlier periods. And so that's one way to to see what happened is that the Fed realized, oh, we, we can get away with pumping in this much new money, I would argue, to bail out their buddies who had made all those bad real estate loans without causing gasoline to shoot up to $5 a gallon. And so that's why they did it. So again, I think, yes, the enhanced global financial network meant that when there was a panic, there was a lot more demand waiting there to soak up dollar-denominated assets. And if we had hard money like we did back in 1820, then you would have seen prices come way down, but we didn't see that. Okay. And I think related to that, since we didn't see significant price inflation, but we are seeing it now, of course, Jay Powell would want us all to think that it's everything other than monetary inflation. And on the surface, he could make the argument to say, look, we had significant monetary inflation with QE and prices didn't increase significantly. They stayed around our target or a little under our target of 2% per year. But now we've had this extraordinary thing. We shut down all of the world economy for almost a year. It caused all kinds of knock-on effects. And rather than monetary inflation, which was very significant, I I think during QE, you can correct me if the numbers are wrong, we went from somewhere around $1 trillion out there, a little less, to $4 trillion. And now we've gone to $20 trillion in two years since the coronavirus pandemic is it just a matter that we created a lot more dollars than we did in QE or are these other effects a factor and how much of each? So the quick answer is, I don't think we can really know ultimately. Theory can just tell us the direction of certain things, but in terms of assessing the quantitative magnitudes, I mean, you can make educated guesses, but technically you wouldn't know that unless we had a time machine, you can go back and, and not have a coronavirus and then just have this amount of monetary inflation and see what the numbers look like in that scenario. So yes, both things do matter. And it is significant to say that what the Fed did starting in March of 2020 dwarfed what they did back in the various rounds of QE. And the various rounds of QE were much bigger than anything the Fed had done in history up to that point. And so it is, I think, disingenuous if Fed officials or others just try to blame this purely on supply chain issues and, hey, there was a lockdown and what do you expect? Because yeah, the the Fed and other central banks pumped in way more money in 2020 than they had ever done before. 
But on the other hand, it, it also is true that by constraining supply, again, what's price and one loose way of thinking about is like how many dollars per unit of output. And so if you constrain real output while you increase the dollars, both things are going to tend to raise the unit price measured in dollars. And so certainly those things have effect. And also too, there's psychology that price inflation has this nasty habit. Like once the public starts anticipating price inflation, what do they do? They want to get rid of the dollars because, oh, hey, this thing is bleeding value. And then that just further accelerates it. So there's lots of different, it's not merely a mechanical engineering question. Is my point. There's still, it's, you know, subjective value theory comes into play and it's ultimately public, the public's expectations. What I guess part of the issue is the things are playing out, things are playing out now the way many of us talked about back in 2009. Whereas it's still, I think the jury is out as to how come things didn't play out like this 10 years ago. So in other words, to me, the surprise is not, or the issue is not, the mystery is not, how come when you have constrained supply and a boatload of money dumped in the system, prices shoot up the highest in 40 years. The issue is still, how come there was a period there where it looked like we were chicken little and it looked like the <laughs> Fed could do whatever it wanted and nobody cared. You know, that was, and it, it may even be partly the Fed has lost its credibility. You know what I mean? Because I, I think I don't know if this is your recollection, Tom, but there was a period late 2008 or early 2009 when lots of people really were worried about QE and they kept checking the BLS statistics to see what's going on with prices. And then after a while, they just got sick of it. And it was like, oh, I guess it turns out doubling the money supply doesn't actually do anything anyway. And, and they got lulled into complacency. So I, I think there is part of that where, because maybe there was that black hole where the Fed just dumped in a bunch of money and nothing seemed bad seemed to happen, then that meant investors were stopped watching that stuff. Whereas now once price inflation is alarming people, I think the Fed can't get away with what it could have gotten away with in 2010. Last question, because I know you got to run. And of course, nobody here gives investment advice, certainly not me, but one would think that according to the Austrian theory of the business cycle, that we're heading for some kind of a crash where there's all this malinvestment. So monetary inflation doesn't just cause prices to rise, but it also sends people and resources to the wrong place, either expanding businesses that don't need to be expanded or funding boondoggles like pets.com or whatever. So are you expecting to see some kind of a huge correction? And it doesn't really matter whether it's in the stock market, in the real price of the stock market adjusted for inflation, and also in the real economy where we get a whole bunch of unemployment, or are we in a new frontier where this kind of intervention is just going to produce different results? Okay. So great question. And yeah, just to partly repeat it back just for your listeners to make sure they're, they're getting the significance. So in the Austrian tradition, the problem with aggressive monetary inflation is not merely that, oh, it causes prices to rise. And it's also not merely that it involves a wealth redistribution into the hands of the people that get the new money first. Because if prices are rising, but you're the, like, if you're a counterfeiter and you're just running off hundred dollar bills and a laser printer in your basement, prices in your community are going to go up, but you're obviously benefiting and the other people are losing, your neighbors are losing. And so that basic simplistic process is still true, even if it's under the auspices of the central bank and they're doing it to buy treasuries. And da, 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 da. If there's this engine that's creating trillions of new dollars, then the people that get their hands on that money first tend to benefit at the expense of those who are eight steps down the chain. 
But in the Austrian tradition, this theory that Ludwig von Mises developed, there's another issue, and that's when new money hits the credit markets relatively soon in the process, it pushes down interest rates. So in other words, when new money enters the system, it distorts prices. If the entry point is through the credit markets, as opposed to a helicopter drop, then the prices that gets distorted are, are interest rates. And then that has a particularly pernicious effect because it causes a false boom. It causes what's called male investments. And so in the Austrian view, that's what causes the familiar boom-bust cycle of market economies. It has to do with banks expanding and contracting credit. Among other problems, yes, I would say, Tom, that the unbelievable amounts of monetary inflation that we saw starting in the spring of 2020, among other problems, is that fueled a bunch of male investments that I don't think we've fully seen the consequences of. So the whole thing is tricky because the yield curve inverted in what August of 2019, if I'm not getting mixed up. And so I was predicting that there was going to be a bad recession in 2020. And there was, but then people could say, oh yeah, but that was just a pandemic. So it's hard to disentangle these things and to know the, the collapse in GDP and the spike in unemployment that happened in 2020. Was that the crash due to the monetary policy or was that just the pandemic lockdowns? So it's hard to say, but to me, Yes, what the Fed did in 2020, the consequences of that we haven't seen yet. Like that should have sowed the seeds for a giant crash. And so, unfortunately, I think we're going to see that. And lots of people are admitting that because the, the Fed keeps talking about tightening, but right now it's mostly been they just slowed the rate of new asset purchases. They really haven't slammed the brakes yet and jacked up interest rates. I think most people agree if they were to do that, there would be a crash. So, that's I think a lot of people agree with the Austrian take on this. They just might think, oh, if the Fed does a soft landing, we can get through this okay. Whereas the Austrians say, no, once you have all these male investments, a crash is inevitable. All right, let's leave it there. I'm going to link to the book. We've talked about really just two chapters, but there's so much in here that even if you've really taken an interest in the Austrian theory of the business cycle and monetary theory, there's things in here you don't know, things of here you never thought of, and it's all written in a very clear style that any non-economist could understand. So thanks very much, Bob. I appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Tom. Glad to do it. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.